0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, Chapter 5, this morning. John, Chapter 5. While you're finding your place there, let me just quickly say a couple things. If all those cute kids up here earlier in the service... Uh, didn't prompt you to uh, jump into kids ministry. You probably don't have a soul. Um, <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> no, it does make me incredibly grateful for those who do serve, and I know many of you serve on a rotation uh, in kids ministry. It's incredibly important to us what you do, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you so very much, um, and I think there uh, probably always is a place uh, for more, and so uh, there are some requirements involved and all of that, um, and uh, naturally background checks and all the stuff that we uh, it 's it's important to do these days, but uh, I do thank those who serve um, on a regular basis in kids ministry uh, so important. A um, couple of things real quickly. Um, this week, Holy Week, uh, there are a couple of things that I typically do uh, during holy Week uh, one. Um, is I, w- I will read a book. Uh, I've read it now uh, at least a half a dozen times, maybe more. Uh, it's a very easy read. It's, a, it's a, just a booklet, really, but it's called In My Place Condemned He Stood, uh, written by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever. Um, And so if you happen to uh, be able to grab a copy of that, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Also, I will be listening to some music. Uh, Music is important to me in my personal uh, time of worship, in my quiet time. And so I will listen to Andrew Peterson's um, resurrection letters. And I will also listen to, um, let's see, this week there is a, um, the, the Gospel Coalition has put out a playlist of 75 songs Uh, for Holy Week, I believe it's called, and uh, Griff has linked those resources uh, through the Easter page on our website, and also I think he's going to put those into the app as well, and so those of you, especially if you have streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music and that kind of stuff, you'll be able to find those, but those are a couple things I do. I hope that you will be intentional uh, in your worship this week, and it will be, uh, like mine, I hope that it will be more focused uh, and more intentional. Uh, There's so much for us to consider and contemplate um, in the midst of this week, and I really hope that you'll make every effort to be here on Friday. Uh, Our Good Friday service is a very uh, unique service in the way that it is designed. It'll be different than anything we might do on a typical Sunday morning, for example. Uh, We'll observe the Lord's Supper together on Friday evening uh, as a part of that service, and so I hope that you will make every effort to be here. On Friday, and then also let me tell you that uh, next Sunday, uh, while our worship schedule will be essentially the same eight thirty and eleven uh, kids ministry will not be exactly the same because um, what they normally do in the eleven o 'clock hour will be replicated in the eight thirty hour and so for some of you who have younger kids who may not come to the early service because child care doesn 't look quite the same. Next week it will, and so uh, Kids Club will be identical during both of those times. That might encourage you to jump to the 8.30 service, and then don't forget there will be a time in between the two services next week for an extended time of fellowship together, uh, coffee and donuts, that kind of thing. We'll have a picture time available for families and and all of that good stuff. Uh, Let me also make an official announcement today. I consider this an official announcement Uh, that there is a special called members meeting scheduled for Sunday, April the 16th. Sunday, April the 16th, it will follow both morning services uh, for the consideration of one matter and one matter only. Uh, And it will be a motion from both our personnel team and uh, our budget and finance team to uh, add a member to our team. Uh, That's going to require a little budget adjustment, and so uh, if you've ever wondered what our church polity looks like here, and when you hear us say elder-led congregationalism, this is it on display, okay? So uh, this is something that's been prayed about and considered, uh, talked about, prayed over, uh, looked at by different teams of people, and now we're bringing that to you uh, for you to affirm that. Uh, and so, uh, the pastoral residency is. This is not a new thing for us, uh, but it is something that will be enhanced through this. And in fact, uh, we now have a name, and a face. In fact, this morning. And so, Chris and Tori, would you just stand up right there, right quick? I I'm, I'm totally took them by surprise right now, Chris and Tori. Uh, yeah, many of you know uh, know them. Uh, the Burgess have been serving as a part of. Uh, a missions organization in London, England, and so they are just now getting their Texas feet back under them and all that good stuff, as you can imagine. And Micah was a pro up here this morning, like he's part of children's ministry all the time. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, that will come on Sunday, the 16th, and so uh, be in prayer about that. Well, We're continuing through the Gospel of John this morning in our current sermon series. and If you were hoping to hear a message, uh, particularly on the triumphal entry, you may be a little disappointed this morning. Uh, we will get there eventually. Okay, That comes in John chapter 12, uh, but what we're looking at today in John chapter 5 is incredibly important as it relates to uh, the Passion Week of Jesus and even the triumphal entry. Uh, as we moved into chapter 5 last week, I mentioned that, that things were shifting a bit. Uh, In in the way that Jesus in his ministry was being received by people, uh, we begin to see a definite definite opposition in many respects. And we're going to see some language, even in today's text, that we've not really seen up to this point in John's gospel. And so remember last week we saw Jesus take the initiative to heal a a lame man who uh, did not seek healing from Jesus, who didn't show any evidence of faith in Jesus, uh, who didn't even seem to respond with gratitude or even faith after he was healed by Jesus? Uh, this impotent man met the omnipotent one uh, who was uh, uh, sovereignly, graciously he was healed of a condition that he had endured for thirty eight years. But there was a problem: The healing took place on the Sabbath. That's a good place for a dramatic uh, musical interlude, like dun-dun-dun, right there. Um, In my younger years, when I was a speech teacher, we did radio programs, and so we would do all the production and all that, and so sound effects and musical interludes became incredibly important. Have you ever tried to watch a movie without music? It's, it's really weird, okay? If you've never done that, like it's really, really strange. It's, in fact, a, a really interesting social experiment. But this is one of those places where I would put one of those um, you know, uh, really uh, impactful musical interludes. Uh, it, and so this naturally, it stirred up a hornet's nest of religious indignation among the self-righteous crowd. When Jesus healed this man, he told him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. you wouldn't think that was a big deal. Except for the fact that he told them to do this on the Sabbath. And that was a direct violation of the Sabbath rules and regulations of the religious leaders of that day. And so that's what brings us to our text this morning of verses 16 through 18. So I hope that you'll follow along there as I read. It says uh, in verse number 16 of John chapter 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now this is the first time we've seen language quite like that. In our study of John's gospel. Okay, Jesus was not accepted by everyone. He was not eagerly welcomed by everyone. Uh, in fact, in this particular case, we see words like persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then the language intensifies. It says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Um, repurposing uh, is something that has become increasingly popular over the last several years particularly. Um, It's kind of a resourceful thing to do, I suppose, and even, uh, we could argue, a responsible thing to do to try to repurpose uh, things. Maybe you've got a coffee table at your house that was one time you know, old pallets or something like that. Um, And so repurposing is the use of something for a purpose other than its original intended use. Uh, Repurposing something can be done by modifying it to fit its new purpose or by using the item in a completely different way. And as I was preparing, I was thinking about... uh, It was just a few years ago that we were doing some work across the street down in the basement. And um, we were replacing some of the drop ceiling in there. And as we were taking out the old drop ceiling, we discovered that much of the drop ceiling was being held up by shoestrings. We laughed a little bit, a little bit shocked. Uh, But that's a pretty good example of of repurposing something, certainly using it uh, in a different way than it was originally intended. And so the repurposing of everyday household items is one thing. But God gave his people a wonderful gift in the Sabbath, a gift which continually found new ways, they continually found new ways to misuse, either through neglect or through distortion. I think in many ways that's still true to this day. So I want us to first consider the Sabbath itself. What exactly does that mean? Whenever we talk about the Sabbath, many times our minds go immediately to a particular day of the week. And we'd say, well, our Sabbath now is Sunday. But is that really the case? Uh, Or is that a misunderstanding of Sabbath? Or do we view Sabbath really as a practice? Are we to practice Sabbath? Uh, What is Sabbath? And and so, again, in verses 16 and 17, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And in that particular text, a particular day of the week. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And so, uh, you probably noticed that Jesus repeatedly had confrontations with uh, Jewish religious leaders over the Sabbath. Uh, He seemed to intentionally, repeatedly seek out such confrontations. Jesus performed this miracle, uh, this miraculous sign on the Sabbath day near the temple where he knew that religious leaders would be and, and would see this healed man carrying his mat just as Jesus had commanded him to. So it seems that part of what Jesus was trying to accomplish by healing this man in this way on this particular day was to provoke some sort of a confrontation, as it were, with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. Now, why was the Sabbath such an issue? Some people read the stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath or the disciples uh, you know, picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And they conclude that Jesus must have been intending to nullify or overthrow the Sabbath. But that's not the case. And we know that given three things that we know about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is fully God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And so he was the one who gave the Ten Commandments, including the fourth commandment on the Sabbath to the people of God. Number two, Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the law, being the very incarnation of the word, the embodiment of the perfect righteousness of God. And then number three, Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish the law. In Matthew chapter five, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, It says there in verse 18 of Matthew chapter five. In verse 17, rather. So we need a way of understanding Jesus' actions that doesn't characterize him as trying to undermine or overthrow the law which he himself gave, which he himself embodied, which he himself said he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, what about the religious leaders and the Sabbath? Why is this such an issue with them? Where, Where does the rub come in? Jesus rebukes the religious leaders not because they were seeking to remember the Sabbath or, or obey God's law for certain, but because they were dishonoring God's Sabbath rest for his people and his whole law. And Dr. David Murray is a professor of Old Testament. And he describes the difference between the religious leader's view of the Sabbath and Jesus' view of the Sabbath as the difference between a miserable Sabbath and a merciful Sabbath. You see, the religious leaders practiced a miserable Sabbath centered around negativity. They forbid people from carrying any kind of a physical burden, even keeping a newly healed invalid from carrying his mat. But they laid on the people such an overwhelming religious burden that no one could lift it. The Sabbath was framed in in terms of all the negatives that you were not allowed to do. These, these lists were so comprehensive, they were so detailed, so technical as to even be broken up into different sections. I mean, like, like they were indexed you know, in a way that that that, that could be, uh, I guess, clarifying because of the complexity of all these things. But it, but it made it a miserable thing. You know, that's why I often refer to the Pharisees of Jesus' day as religious referees. Now you think about it, referees, really in any sport... Uh, one of the main things that they do is they call out bad behavior, right? Like you go to a basketball game and there's a foul called. What did, many times did the fans start chanting, you can't do that, you can't do that, right? They don't throw flags on the football field uh, so that they can report that the left tackle made a really good block on that last play and that's why it sprung for 12 yards. No, if they blow the whistle and throw a flag, they're, they're going to call somebody for holding, probably, or an illegal block in the back, or illegal motion, or something like that. They're pointing out uh, the negative things that the players do. Uh, and so that, that was much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were the religious referees, always looking to throw the flag, always looking to blow the whistle for some violation, particularly, of, of these Sabbath rules and regulations, many of them that they had added Uh, to what God had said. So ironically, the Sabbath command is one of two of the Ten Commandments that are actually expressed primarily in positive terms. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The other is honor your father and your mother. So whenever you think of the Ten Commandments, you typically think of thou shalt what? Not thou shalt not thou shalt not they're expressed in kind of in in a, in a negative sense, but the those two expressed positively. But they took this positive command to remember and keep, and they made it a negative day of misery. So the religious leaders, they furthered the misery of their Sabbath by adding such weight and such importance to the Sabbath. Clearly, God had repeatedly and even passionately called his people to repent of their violations of the Sabbath. But the Sabbath day and the Sabbath years when they were supposed to, to give their land rest even. But the religious leaders took this past pattern of Sabbath neglect and they pushed an extreme version of Sabbath in the opposite direction. And like most things, you find extremes, right? So you've got those the the pharisaical type who view it in a very legalistic sort of way. But then you've got others, which which we kind of see in today's modern world, who have very little, if any, understanding of Sabbath and think it's of no importance whatsoever. And I'm not talking about just a particular day necessarily. We'll talk about that in a moment. In in fact, in Jesus' day, many rabbis, they taught that if the people of God would keep a, a single Sabbath perfectly, truly, perfectly, then God would send the Messiah and rescue his people. That's how stringently some of them tied Sabbath observation with the Messiah. And so a Sabbath violation became then not just a personal issue, but a national betrayal, preventing God's people from receiving their Messiah and the Messianic deliverance. That's why it was such a big deal to them. Let's talk some more about Jesus and the Sabbath. Because in in really in contrast to the Pharisees, Jesus, on the other hand, practiced a merciful Sabbath. He intentionally took the Sabbath as a prime time to heal and to restore and to bless. And he saw the Sabbath for what it was, a gift from God. He taught that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so from the vantage point of even creation itself... Jesus was reflecting the fact that God made man first and then rested on the seventh day, creating the the Sabbath, the pattern. And so making it holy, inviting his people to enter his rest. And so God was the first one, we could say, to create and keep Sabbath. He is the, the one who truly made it holy. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, right? To bring the blessings of salvation to God's people. And one of the key things that he did was to reclaim the Sabbath day from the burdensome day of misery that the religious leaders had made it to be the merciful day of rest and blessing that God always intended it to be. They had repurposed it for their own agenda. So the religious leaders thought that obeying the Sabbath rules was a way to earn God's favor and God's blessing. It's classic legalism. And so Jesus showed that the Sabbath itself is a gift of God's favor and blessing. The religious leaders taught that if the people of God would just give God this perfect Sabbath obedience, then Messiah would come and deliver them. Jesus taught that he came as Messiah to fulfill perfect obedience for his people and to bring them the blessing and deliverance that the Sabbath was always intended to embody as a promise. So the Sabbath has always been about resting in God's finished work. Not seeking to establish our own. So the seventh day, Saturday Sabbath, was an invitation by God to enter into his rest from the finished work of creation. When Jesus had finished the work of redemption, he rose again on the, what, the first day of the week. And the focus of what many would call the Christian Sabbath shifts from entering into creation rest to entering into redemption rest. It's the finished work of redemption that we enter into, that we rest in, that we enjoy as a blessing from God. And at the same time, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that Jesus inaugurated in his own resurrected body. That's why we worship on the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day. It's an expression used by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 when he said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when God gave him the visions for writing the book of Revelation. The Lord's Day both commemorates uh, the Lord's resurrection. His day of victory looks forward to the day of the Lord, the day of final consummation. So Sabbath. But then verses 17 and 18, uh, things get real for these religious leaders. I want us to focus on the Son of God. If I had to entitle this message, I would call it the Sabbath and the Son of God, or the Son of God and the Sabbath. And we see that he is doing the work of the Father. So what does Jesus mean when he says in our text here, my Father is working until now, and I am working? Well, Jesus is pointing out the well-known and accepted fact that while God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day, he never stopped his work of providence working to govern, preserve, and uphold his creation. God is always continually taking care of his creation, tending and caring for his world. And More importantly, Jesus very pointedly refers to God here as my Father and says that he too is working just as God is. So Jesus' healing of this invalid man is, is an expression of his care for his creation. The same kind of work of providence as his father does. His statement in verse 17 doesn't directly tell us what we should do necessarily since he is speaking here as the unique son of God. But we can reasonably understand if Jesus taught that the Sabbath was a great day to to clearly demonstrate his care and concern for the creation, exercising mercy and healing, then we can imitate him and do likewise. So we cannot do the works of God in the same authoritative and miraculous way as Jesus, but we can take advantage of Sabbath to show forth God's loving care for his creation. We do this by deeds of mercy and love and reaching out and seeking to care and heal and restore and preserve and uphold God's good creation, especially people who are made in his image. But then notice the rub is that he was claiming equality with the Father. The more important significance of Jesus' statement is something that was not lost on the religious leaders. Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Verse 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It's why the temperature is suddenly turned up. And we're seeing this kind of language for the first time in John's gospel. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus called God, my father, and said that he was working just as his father was working, Jesus was equating himself with God and his work with God's work. John's language in verses 17 and 18 emphasized this truth. Jesus said, my father, and I myself am also working. And then John observes that Jesus was calling God his own father. Clear in his language that the religious leaders, they caught it too. They found it appalling. And so I want us to consider for just a moment their understanding and their reaction. The religious leaders understood what Jesus was claiming. They were just unwilling to consider that he might be telling the truth. For them, the very claim that he made was a non-starter, an impossible contradiction. Jesus was essentially claiming to be doing the works of God as one who is equal with God. So a sensible response to that kind of a claim would be to ask the one making the claim to prove it, right? Prove it. To substantiate the claim with some evident demonstration of divine power. Well, the religious leaders couldn't do this, though, because Jesus had already provided such proof. He gave the demonstration of his divine power before he he made his claim to divine nature. The religious leaders rejected Jesus, not because he was wrong, but because he was a threat to them. This man making these bold claims, supporting his claims with public, undeniable demonstrations of divine authority, is the same man who drove the money changers and the animal sellers out of the temple and who told the man healed here on the Sabbath to carry his mat on the Sabbath. In other words, the real problem with Jesus wasn't his claim to divine nature or his demonstration of divine power. It was his confrontation of their corrupt, legalistic, self-serving religious system. That's what they found so offensive. Why do people reject Jesus today? Is it because they don't have any proof of his divine nature or his divine power? You might hear someone try to express it that way. The scripture provides a clear record of Jesus' public ministry, his miracles, his claims to divine nature and authority, and especially of his resurrection from the dead. Multiple accounts of the same miracles provide us with the confidence of numerous eyewitnesses to Jesus' public miracles and corroborating accounts. People reject Jesus today for much the same reason the religious leaders rejected him in that day. He's a threat. Jesus brings healing and forgiveness, deliverance from sin and the curse of the fall. However, he also turns over the tables of the money changers and the animal sellers and challenges all of our attempts to establish our own righteousness to earn favor with God. In other words, Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, to take away our sin and our idols, to heal all of our diseases, beginning with the disease of self-righteousness. It's as C.S. Lewis explains in Mere Christianity. He writes it this way, Jesus says to us, give me all of you. I don't want just so much of your time or so much of your talents and money, so much of your work. I want you. I want all of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. To put the flesh to death. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in an exchange. I will give you myself. My will shall become your will, my heart shall become your heart. It's radical. It's radical. This is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day couldn't accept. They wouldn't have minded so much if Jesus was willing to sign on to their cause. To support their religious enterprise, to help to establish their kingdom, expand their power and rule of the nation. They always imagined that Messiah would come and usher them into glory in a way that would affirm and strengthen their rule. That's why you have to remember, even on that Palm Sunday, the crowd was mixed. Mixed. There may have been some crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and all those things. But they were looking for a whole different... That's why it was so bizarre to see this king on a donkey? Wait, what? Kings don't come in on donkeys? (laughs) This must be a different kind of king than the one we've been looking for, or hoping for, or expecting. Aren't you coming to overthrow Roman rule and to set up a kingdom? on earth. And so they missed their Messiah. They rejected his merciful, saving rule and ended up trying to kill the Lord of glory. I think that's what it ultimately means to transition from the religious leader's Sabbath day to the Lord's day. In the mindset of, uh, uh, of religiously self-righteous people, a Sabbath is something that we give to God to show him how good we are managing our time and giving an appropriate slice of the pie to him. So if you look at it from a, a purely legalistic perspective, much like the Pharisees, then we give God his one-seventh of our time and one-tenth of our money, perhaps, and he leaves us alone. We get to keep the other six-sevenths of our time and the other nine-tenths of our money. But as we study John's gospel here, we discover just how crucial the Sabbath was to the Jews of Jesus' day. The seventh day marks the setting of so many clashes uh, between the Pharisees. And and when we read something like, now it was on the Sabbath day. Again, great place for that dramatic pause. Every time we read that, we expect trouble. Here it comes again, just throwing a flag, blowing the whistle once again, just didn't wash their hands just right, didn't, some other violation. Strictly speaking, the only commandments Jesus broke on the Sabbath belong to Jewish tradition, not to divine law. In their zeal to define exactly what a person could and could not do on the Sabbath, Jewish leaders laid on the people's backs this spiritual burden heavier than any physical burden. And Jesus attacked such traditions with the vehemence of one who saw more clearly than any that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Lord's Day as Jesus established it, confesses and demonstrates that we belong to the Lord. It's the first day of the week, commemorates the new life that Jesus brought into being in his own resurrection. We're not giving a day to the Lord to satisfy some legalistic requirement and check off the appropriate box on our righteousness checklist. We're confessing that we belong to the Lord by beginning our week in worship. We are giving thanks because he has redeemed us and we are his. So then the question is, should Christians keep the Sabbath? If you're talking about a particular day of the week in the same way that the the Pharisees of Jesus' day would have been, that's one thing. Should Christians observe Sabbath? Practice Sabbath? Absolutely. For me, I, I try to Sabbath on Friday. That is my day off from my normal pastoral duties. It's a day when I try to disconnect as much as I can from, uh, from the different things that, that require my attention on a day-to-day basis and all of that. What it is, it's, it's an expression of trust in the Lord. Now check this out. If Mike unplugs from everything as much as he possibly can, the church isn't going under this week. This is not my church to begin with. It's his. I know sometimes we can reach this place in our lives and certainly in ministry where we think, you know, God's really lucky to have me on his team. (laughs) Trust me. God doesn't need me. Okay? God doesn't need me. So it's a matter of trust. Now the question is not whether Israel should have kept the Sabbath under the Old Covenant. But whether Christians should under the news. Should Christians keep the Sabbath? The, the question may sound nonsensical to some. We keep commandments 1 to 3 and 5 to 10, don't we? Why skip number 4, right? And yet, strewn throughout the New Testament is telling evidence that in Christ and the new covenant, the Sabbath, check this out, has found its fulfillment. Has found its fulfillment. That's important. In one sense, no. Under the new covenant, no Christian is bound to the fourth commandment as such. We may still decide to rest one day in seven, and I would submit that we should. And wisdom uh, seems to support the practice of imitating God's own six in one pattern, especially in a day when many can work from anywhere at any time, answering emails after dinner, taking calls on the weekend. I think certainly we would be wise. Even for one day in seven to say, I worked yesterday, I'll work tomorrow, but today I rest and I worship, I recharge. Do we approach that in a legalistic sense? Some people would say that, oh, if if it's your Sabbath, you can't mow your yard. Well, if that's something that you find refreshing, if that's something that you find is regenerative for you, working in your garden or whatever, I think that's okay. Okay. That's so we have to be careful that we not approach this in the same legalistic sense that the Pharisees of Jesus' day did. So in another sense, however, Christians should keep Sabbath, observe Sabbath always. And here we do find a connection, I think, between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Lord's Day. In the Old Testament, the literal, physical rest of the Sabbath pointed to future rest. But since Christ has brought fulfillment in terms of salvation rest, it is the present enjoyment of this rest that acts as a foretaste of the consummation rest which is to come. In other words, it is the the celebration on the Lord's Day of the rest that we already have through Christ's resurrection that now anticipates and guarantees the rest that is yet to be. That's what this is. It's it's much like a a lot of, it's it's a foretaste of what is to come. You see, we're living in this this, this what we call the already, but not yet. Right? If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are already free, fully forgiven. Right? Free from the penalty of sin. Okay? But we're still living in the presence of sin. You see that tension of the already, but not yet? And we see that here as well. Every Lord's Day, we come again to Jesus weary and laden. That's why Matthew chapter 11 becomes so important. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not just talking about physical rest. It's talking about spiritual rest. We trace the shadow of the Sabbath to its substance. We hear again in the distance the sounds of the future Sabbath festival. We glimpse again by faith the glow of what the writer of Hebrews describes as the innumerable angels in festal gathering. We look again into the empty tomb and hear Christ say, peace to you. In other words, we find rest, the kind of rest that remains long after Sunday has passed. So without regularly experiencing that kind of rest, with special power every Lord's Day, it matters little how much we physically rest our bodies if we are not resting in Jesus. This ain't just about a nap, okay? And I'm all for naps, amen? amen? Hey, there is nothing quite like a Sunday afternoon nap. That's what I'm saying. Especially after you've preached a couple times on Sunday morning. But here's the thing, our rest, if we're not understanding it properly, will be restless. And our work will become a desperate attempt to secure for ourselves the rest that we have not found in Christ. Neither the sluggard, you know, the one who works for the weekend, nor the workaholic who has no weekend, has yet learned to enjoy the rest of the true Sabbath. Not so. With those who have heard and heeded Jesus' invitation to take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for what? For your souls. It's why we can sing with the hymn writer of old, It is well with my soul. If you know the history of that hymn, you know it was not written when things were going great. (laughs) Anything but And so that's why we can get up on a a Monday or Tuesday and turn on the news and see another indication that we live in a broken, sinful world. And even in the midst of all that and the pain and the suffering that you may be experiencing personally, in the midst of all that, because you understand the rest, the true Sabbath that we have in Jesus Christ and can say in the midst of all that, it is well, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul please hear this carefully as I close. The world and the devil would have us work even while we rest. But Jesus would have us rest even while we work. And here, in this Christ-saturated resting and working, we live out the Sabbath today. So if we could, for just a moment, bow our heads and close our eyes together. I realize in a room this size, this many people are very likely more than a few people today who would say, Pastor, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm tired. And you're probably thinking about a physical exhaustion. Just tired. There are others in the room who, if you're completely honest, would have to say, I too am tired. I'm weary. My soul is not at rest in Christ. Maybe you're more like the Pharisees of Jesus' day than you would like to admit. You seem to be on this endless pursuit of somehow, some way, trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. If I just do enough good things, if I just say no to enough bad things, then somehow, some way, I'll, I'll earn God's favor. That's exhausting. It's an exercise in futility because God's word makes it clear that even on your best day, even on my best day, we can't be good enough. That's why scripture says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you've never found the true rest for your soul that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take that step of faith today. I would love to pray with you after the service today. I would love to share with you from God's Word how you can know what it is to find rest for your soul. You can live out the words of that song, it is well with my soul. And you can sing those words in the midst of a health crisis, a financial dilemma, fractured broken relationships, you can say it as well with my soul, even as tears may be streaming down your cheeks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone can we find true rest for our souls. I pray for those here today who may have never found that rest. They're searching, seeking, longing for. Continually find themselves in a place of restlessness, a spiritual restlessness a yearning, a longing, a striving, even a working when the work is done. It's in Christ alone that we find hope and healing and rest for our souls. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Learn of me and I will give you rest for your souls. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen- Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstenen. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.